I hope you'll enjoy this recording and consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, my talks are offered entirely without charge and supported by donations only. Please feel invited to stop by dharmapunksnyc.com, that's spelled with an X, to check out a chapter from my book, Unsubscribe, which arrives November 2017. And thank you. Um, one of the absolute foundational teachings in the Dharma, in fact, arguably, it's the core insight that um, of Buddhist psychology is called, uh, in the Buddhist time, is called the Paticca Samapada. There's absolutely no good translation of it. So, uh, and I don't like the ones that are in contemporary usage. So I'll just explain that the Paticca Samapada was the Buddha's sort of sequence of how suffering and distress arises in life. And he lists a set of stages that explains the very uh, the process of mental experience that eventually flourishes into both uh, happiness, peace of mind, or suffering and distress. So it's a sequence of stages. The core stages that are of interest to anyone who works in Buddhist psychology is um, the Buddha teaches that right after the development of consciousness, we attain this state of, uh, or this stage of what he calls Nama Rupa. And a basic translation of that would be body-mind. Uh, a mind, a proto-mind, a proto-personality consisting of very basic perceptions and ideas about what is good and bad in the world, what we should look to for safety, what we should flee from, uh, what we should avoid, what we should gravitate towards. Now, in traditional early Buddhism, the explanation for how this came about was essentially karma. The idea was you did shit in your previous life, and then that somehow you jump from a previous life into a new body, and you carry with you uh, some of the tendencies and traits, and that would create this sort of proto-personality that is there from birth. Um, in case you're wondering, I don't believe that. Uh, I'm a secular Buddhist, which means I don't really abide by the mystical teachings. I abide by the, um, the verifiable uh, teachings that I can see and witness and use in my counseling work and in the work that I do in general, the writing and so forth. So I tend to believe that the, what causes this proto-personality is a mixture of genetics, and a mixture of nurture or early life interactions with our caregivers. So basically, I tend to believe that it's a, a partially uh, genetics, but a large portion is based on our early interactions with uh, adults that we seek to connect with to survive as infants. So anyway, we, however we wind up with it, we wind up with this Nama Rupa, this very, very basic set of, oh, this kind of person is safe, 
this kind of person is not safe, this situation is threatening, this situation I can relax in, and so forth. It's a very basic set of uh, withdrawal and approach beliefs about different objects and situations in the world. Um, and the idea is that after that, we, when we come in contact with various different new situations in life, if we have strong feelings with the Buddha calls Vedana, then the Buddha says there's this tendency not to stay with Vedana and feel it and connect with it and observe it, but to instead try to alleviate the feelings, the primary emotions that we feel, and to do something, to act out on a secondary set of emotional behaviors called craving, where we start to feel threatened, so we uh, instead distract ourselves with food or uh, sex or with watching Netflix, or we seek something to alleviate the underlying emotion, pure emotional feelings of tension that arise in new situations. So, and then that leads directly towards thinking and behaviors that are completely based on clinging to anything that will keep us from feeling this underlying Vedana, these core, inner, strong, uh, internal emotions that are, you know, the tight stomach with fear, the joy and elation of meeting someone, the uh, excitement or a fear of feeling angry or a fear of feeling uh, anxiety. We develop these, these essentially these replacement emotions and behaviors and thoughts to mask these underlying physiological states. So this is actually very, very eerily similar with the work of uh, both cognitive neuroscientists as, such as Joseph Ledoux, uh, Michael Gazaniga, Jack Pansep, Antonio Damasio, who all, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about their beliefs, but uh, not only is there this understanding that emotions precede thought and precede secondary emotions, but that there's also a strong tendency now in emotion-focused therapies of Diana Fosha and Sue Johnson, Leslie Greenberg, and Pat Ogden, and so forth, to posit that we uh, should return and learn how to hold and feel the first primary emotions and not uh, try to survive by the secondary adaptive, sort of uh, trained, sociologically trained emotions that we learn to exhibit and go back to the pure primary emotions that have been um, uh, uh, instilled through 1.8 million years of natural selection. The human species is actually, before it has early life experience, uh, is born with a set of basic emotional reactions that have been honed by all of our history and natural, natural selection. And these emotions play vital roles. The first thing is that these pure uh, primary, primary means fast, they're the first things you feel. 
Um, primary emotions are absolutely necessary if we want to have any kind of accurate appraisal of the world around us. Now you might think, well, surely thought is what does that. But actually, no. What we now know from the work of McGilchrist and uh, Gazaniga and Sperry and so forth is that um, thinking, left hemispheric, left brain processes don't accurately portray the world. What they do is they reduce experience to already known ideas and concepts. So we're constantly looking around at the world around us and saying, oh, this is a shit day, or this is a great day, that's a nice person, that's uh, an irritant, this, why is this happening? And we, so we take a rich, nuanced, novel, new experience, and we reduce it to known ideas, like, oh, this is good, bad, I like this, I don't like this, this sucks, whatever. And so we're actually simplifying and reducing lived experience with thought. Thought is, by very nature, it's representational and reductionist. The right brain, the emotional uh, center of the brain, actually gravitates towards the richness and detail and the fluidity of the world around us. It doesn't represent the world. It actually sees the world as it is. And there's some amazing... Uh, uh, experiments that McGilquist quotes in his book, The Master and, his em and the Emissary, um, that show that when you have patients that have left brain strokes, the right brain can still pretty much accurately draw the world around it and can accurately create a representation. But if we have a right hemispheric stroke, which, which uh, diminishes the emotional, especially a lot of the negative emotions and the base emotional gut feelings in the left hemisphere can speak, but it can't represent the world at all accurately. It sees everything in these kind of really reduced weird symbols that don't... If you ask somebody with a right hemispheric stroke to draw a flower, it just looks like a, like a circle with a line coming out of it. It, it. it has nothing of the real in it. So the right hemisphere sees constantly updates and validates our need for other people. It's, and it connects with us through to, uh, a couple of ways. One, feelings, primary emotions. Two, through emotional signals that, are not at a, that we can't control, like crying or feel elation. You know, external signals you can see when somebody's really thrilled or upset or in pain. And then the third way is um, states of attention. When we are anxious or frightened, the attention drifts back and jumps back and forth, back and forth to one different thing, looking for something to rescue us. On the other hand, when we're depressed, we fog out. We lose awareness. We lose all kind of ability to focus on anything external and be excited by anything. So these are the way the right brain connects with us and it's a, and its messages are absolutely vital. The right brain is what holds the bulk of our uh, entire species history. All of the fine tuning of uh, evolution is provided to us and much of evolution is pretty much perfect. It trains us 
to do things that uh, perhaps robots will never be able to do. Even a three-year-old child can walk and balance, can flee threatening situations, can connect with people in an emotionally authentic way. Robots, machines can't do that. So uh, we are a very, very emotionally advanced species. I'll give you a list of some of the core emotions and what they're trying to tell us. And if you can connect with your primary, fast, uh, unvarnished emotional states, they give you some of these messages. So anger is an outrage at abuse or injustice. It urges us to set boundaries and to confront injustice. Sadness is a, an emotional state that urges us to process a disappointing experience in a relationship. It asks that we disconnect and feel the loss to inform the emotional mind that this attachment figure is no longer available, that we've been betrayed. And so grief and sadness have a deep role in helping us process uh, disconnections. Fear is the dread and fright that we experience when we're in a frightening situation or relationship. Its message is to get the fuck out, right? Joy is delight and excitement over new experiences that have possibilities and new connections. Surprise is an emotional state that urges us to deeply investigate and get curious about a new situation. It asks that we don't overlook and immediately get lost in a daydream or take a selfie in front of something, but actually to really get curious and investigate something. Shame is an emotional state that essentially punishes us when we think we've done something to hurt the tribal bonds that we've established to connect us with a group or a community. And pride is, of course, the emotional state that we feel when we believe we've done something that enhances our tribal relationships. So, of course, all emotions can be maladaptive if we grow up in really, really toxic environments where even our primary emotions are uh, programmed or skewed. But most of the time, even in anxious or insecure childhoods, there is a degree where we do wind up with healthy primary relation, uh, emotions, which I just listed. But there are times in life where, due to unavailable caretakers or uh, teachers or peers or friends or adults, that certain emotions that we try to signal and feel in childhood get shamed, denied, uh, disregarded, not appreciated by a caregiver or by other friends or other adults. And so what happens then is we abandon or block those primary emotions. They could be a, very often women are um, by their parents dissuaded, discouraged for feeling anger and are encouraged instead to feel secondary emotions which are masking emotions, emotions that are taught. When you feel angry, that doesn't look good in you. It's okay if you feel sad or excited or you feel disappointed, but we will not tolerate anger. 
So the parent or the family system or the culture is disempowering you of a vital emotion that keeps you safe in abusive situations. If you disempower someone of their anger, you are disempowering them of a way to confront abuse. If you disempower someone of fear, if you shame a child's fear, then you disempower that child of knowing when it's time to escape a threatening relationship or situation. So, children have this really, really deep need for what's called object constancy, which is the sense that there will always be a caregiver, a parent available. So the child will do pretty much anything to maintain a relationship. And so in certain uh, family systems or cultural settings or classroom settings or peer groups, the child is trained to um, essentially switch a lot of primary emotions for secondary maladaptive emotions. So that child, there's something gained when the child does that. When the child blocks its primary emotion, for instance, suppose a child is disempowered of uh, getting excited. The parents are depressed and they don't want a child that gets excited and thrilled. They judge the child. Then when the child feels that level of energy, it can't have any catharsis of releasing the emotional energy. So the child will use a secondary emotion that's tolerated by the parent as a way to achieve catharsis. Catharsis means relieving, alleviating, expelling the energy that has been developed by the first emotion. So secondary emotions allow us to discharge all the energy that's built up in an emotional state, but there's a real problem with them, which is they are fucking with all of our history of fine-tuning the human species to correctly adapt to various different situations. For example, if you have somebody who's disempowered of fear, as I said, uh, in childhood, the parents always sort of, or the, the peers, the siblings, the teachers, uh, make fun of the child who's frightened, then that child will be disempowered of uh, an emotional state that urges her or him to escape a situation that's legitimately abusive and unsafe. If that child is instead of ex encouraged to experience fear, is encouraged to experience to express uh, confidence, then the child will stay in damaging abusive situations rather than fleeing. Are you following me? I hope so. Anyway, the idea is that the primary emotions have vital information, and if we start swapping them for secondary emotions, then very often those secondary emotions help us adapt to our family systems or to our culture, but they disempower us of the vital messages that we need to survive and connect with others. You see, uh, not only being compliant in abusive situation, but we'll train to avoid conflict. If in, in times of, when we were childhood, we wanted to confront a parent who was being unfair, but then the parent became violent or <laughs> rageful, then we're disempowered of anger, and we will then avoid conflict in our life. And then we will not be able to sustain relationships very well.
if we've been disempowered of being vulnerable in childhood, then we won't know how to ask for help in adult life. If we're encouraged to be self-reliant and not be asked for help because the parent is too busy and the parent wants to instill self-reliance, but then that child grows up to be someone who as an adult can never acknowledge that they're overwhelmed and need help. So anytime we rely on secondary emotions, we tend to, we tend to wind up with behavioral states that look great for you know, early life experiences but do not help us as adults. So, the key is, again, to remember that the embodied perspective of the right brain is carrying so many vital messages that we lose. For example, the right brain urges us to connect. It urges us to appreciate the present moment. It doesn't ever think about the past or the future. The right brain urges us to develop secure connections. The right brain is what makes us sob and grieve when we lose a friend. The secondary emotion is what shuts that down and says, well, fuck them. I'll just be self-reliant and I'll just focus on something completely different that looks good. The more we try to rely on either cognition or uh, secondary emotions, we will experience a sense of self that's disembodied that doesn't prioritize interpersonal connections, that wants to be increasingly self-reliant, that will chase after financial security at the expense of real, available interpersonal connections. It will prioritize the future goals over appreciating the present. It will worry about our reputation rather than not caring about what the bulk of people think about us, but simply cherishing and moving into and solidifying our deep uh, attachments. It will reward us for accumulation at the expense of uh, what the emotional mind prioritizes, which is seeing, leaning into, appreciating the present moment and the secure connections that are available to us therein. So you might finally want to ask, if all of what I'm presupposing based on not only my own observations but the work of a lot of brilliant psychologists is true, um, how do we know the difference between a primary emotion and a secondary emotion? And to which I can tell, I can say one, very often we will learn uh, young to over-prioritize certain emotions, to perform certain emotional states, and those we will tend to fall into in a wide variety of settings. For example, somebody with borderline personality disorder will have been trained by early life experience to constantly gravitate towards anger and chaos because fear or sadness was disempowered or was not the child was not able to process. So there's an emotion that we continually gravitate to all the time and that we stay stuck in. We can tell that that's a secondary one. Primary emotions tend to arise. They tend to be very, very scary and strong. 
because we've never fully uh, integrated them into our self state. So we've abandoned these emotions so early on in life that if we reconnect with our anger or our fear or our joy or our excitement or our curiosity, at first those states will be very, they'll feel very foreign and scary. Whereas the secondary emotions, which can be depression, grief can be a secondary emotion that can be trained rather than sadness or rather than anger, that will feel familiar. The emotion will feel very, very familiar, something that we're in very often. There also with secondary emotions will be a very, very strong thought content. You won't just feel the emotion, but you'll start feeling resentments if you've been trained to feel anger. If you have been trained to not feel anger but feel grief, you'll feel not only sadness and depression, but you'll have constant thoughts of self-pity. Why is this happening to me? Why me? I'm all alone. If you have been trained to always perform joy at the expense of sometimes expressing shock, at strange and startling situations, then you'll have over-the-top feelings of op or thoughts of optimism and everything's going to be great, uh, and you'll be flooded with those. So secondary emotions tend to have this large uh, cognitive component to them. Primary emotions don't. They tend to be these really strong, frightening waves of feelings that feel like we've been taken over by something that's scary, uh, unless we've integrated those emotions very well. They can, uh, if you stay with them, like the Buddha said, they will rise and they will pass. They won't get stuck. They don't have, primary emotions do not have a strong cognitive component to them. So you can't just rely on thinking or thought or inner chatter as a way to understand them. They are strange embodied sensations of, of physical sensations arising, an explosion of tension, uh, contraction in the chest of grief, or a tightening in the belly of fear, or locking of the jaw and, and shoulders of anger, or this feeling, an upsurge of energy of joy and connection. But none of these things are, you know, they're just embodied somatic states. So that's enough about all that. <laughs> uh, now I'm just going to lead a meditation that will hopefully in the second part get us in contact with some of these primary emotions and help us have a way to stay with and create a safe container. So I hope that was of some interest. and. Um, so now let's uh, find a really comfortable seated position.
So let's first establish some good balance. And all that means is, you know, feel into the body, see if the sensations of your ears, which you can wriggle, uh, and the sensations of your shoulders, which you can lift and lower a bit, and then the sensations of your buttocks, which you can clench. Try to bring those three sets of sensations in alignment where you feel the ears over the shoulders and the shoulders over the the sit bones. Another way of doing that is simply you can rock a bit from side to side and front and back and just allow your body to settle, come to its own sense of alignment. Don't, don't control it, just let the body tell you what is a good upright position. So let's take a few breaths just to settle the uh, body in a way that also encourages the mind to relax into the present experience. So take that nice full in-breath and lift your shoulders up and hold the in-breath and then breathe out your mouth and drop. The shoulders, and if it feels right for you, gently pull your shoulders back, which opens up the chest. It, when the chest is broad and open, it tends to send a message saying, along with a deep in-breath and a long out-breath, tells the midbrain that we are safe. And then the secondary full in-breath, pulling the belly in like you're trying to just reduce two inches from your waistline by holding in your belly and then breathe out and just soften and relax the belly and just breathe into a soft belly no trying to just let it be released without any desire to present yourself to anyone else no one's looking and then finally, the third breath, squinching the muscles in the face really tight, locked jaw, squinched eyes, furrowed brow, and then breathe out. And just release the jaw. Soften the micro-muscles around the eyes. And ask your eyes themselves to relax into the eye sockets like they're two beds and the eyes don't have to jump about anymore. The eyelids are closed or mostly closed. So encourage your eyes to settle 
When the eyes are settled, it goes a long way to settling the mind. And just for the first part of the meditation, let's find an ongoing sensation that you can hold in awareness that will allow the mind to just stay with present time experience without an anchor, as we call it, an ongoing sensation. The mind tends to latch on to the busiest thing in the mind, which is, of course, thinking. It's also generally the most dramatic. So the attention tends to latch on to thinking and then will go off into all kinds of virtual reality projections. Before you know it, we'll be very, very far from present time experience. And while that can be fun to daydream, it actually is associated with stress and uh, a buildup of cortisol, whereas relaxing the mind and keeping it with a task-positive state, like observing the breath, has been shown to reduce cortisol, improve memory, reduce stress. As deeply important healing properties for gray matter, not to mention stress reduction in life. So, one way to stay with the breath, if you like, is to count in-breaths and out-breaths. So you can Think one as you breathe in, two as you breathe out, and then in the pause, between the out and the next in-breath, just think pause. And then you might think three on the in, four on the out, and then pause. Five on the in, six on the out, and then pause. Then whenever you want, you can start counting back down. So seven on the in, Six on the out, pause. Five on the in, four on the out, pause. Now, spend as much effort as you can on the actual pause. That's when your mind is most likely to drift. If you don't like working with the breath, just listen to the sounds of the room. Contact sensations with the cushion the lights flickering behind closed eyes. Or you can just repeat a very simple phrase over, over, and over again in your mind. I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. Whichever anchor you work with, you will eventually lose awareness of it. Your mind might, sooner or later, jump onto a thought and be whisked into a reverie or mental excursion away from the present. When that happens, don't add any frustration or self-criticism. It's completely normal. It's not about you. Everybody's mind does that, especially in early practice. 
So just gently like you're escorting a small child away from a scary part of a park, just gently lead that child back again and again with nothing but kindness and appreciation back to safety, the present moment. Could nothing else make your meditation a refuge from any inner judgment, any self-criticism, any impatience, any frustration? So with that, we'll go into silence for a while.
So at this point, you can release the anchor that you've been keeping in awareness. And I'd like you to now do a practice, or invite you to do a practice, where we're going to try to connect with some primary process emotions that we may have lost touch with over the years. And one of the most difficult emotions to connect with is loneliness. People will pretty much do anything to avoid experiencing loneliness. Sometimes they will eat, binge watch TV, hook up for intimacy-free sexual connections. They will rely on extensive texting or social media usage, anything to not feel lonely, which is an emotional message encouraging us to connect with others. It's a vital message telling us to actually get out of our comfort zone and build new, strong attachments and alliances. But if we're going to do that, we actually first have to feel the emotion to have the full impetus to take the action which is adaptive. So, <coughs> bring up a situation in your mind where you're at home alone. You feel maybe the absence of people in your life. Maybe a feeling of disconnection. A time where you feel a compulsion to act in some way to alleviate or get rid of the loneliness. So you might visualize that moment right before when you're alone. You might visualize that moment when you're about to eat or turn on Netflix or go to the computer to switch on Facebook or go to Tinder or go to Amazon and just visualize that moment when you feel that compulsion to alleviate the edginess or the discomfort of loneliness and instead now ask yourself what would it be like if I couldn't do any of those things. And suddenly the internet went out and I didn't have any food and there was nothing to alleviate that feeling of loneliness. How would that feel? How would it feel if you couldn't avail yourself of any of the secondary tools you rely on to mask loneliness? Where would you feel it in your body? How would you know that you were lonely?
can you find some area that feels hollow or tense or contracted, sore, some area in the front of the body that tells you what loneliness is? Can you feel a heaviness in the mind? And being with anything that arises, can you now feel some inclination to follow its message to connect with others? let that go and let's just do a second exercise some of us will have learned to mask sadness with anger in situations where we feel mistreated or abandoned we lose someone we find it difficult to stay with the sadness and we go into just a sense of outrage For others, we'll have been disempowered of our anger and we'll go into sadness whenever people mistreat us. Instead of ever feeling the anger to confront the mistreatment, we'll just wind up increasingly depressed or sad. So visualize whichever feels more applicable to you, a situation where you feel either betrayed or let down or mistreated by someone. Note the immediate secondary emotion with the thinking that might arise and then ask that emotion to step aside to connect with something deeper in the body that's more awkward and difficult to be with the emotion that we've yet to integrate into our self-experience. Let's see if you can connect with that state, physiological tightness in the belly or in the throat or in the face without any thinking to it, just this pure, difficult, foreign almost energy that's it might, it might feel at first threatening like it will never go away simply because we've been running from this feeling, but see if you can just relax enough of the body that you can stay with it and keep breathing really long in and out create a safe container to hold 
And just tell yourself it's okay. Whatever you're feeling, it's okay. I'm not going to run from this feeling anymore. So I'm about to ring the bowl, and when you hear the sound, just take a moment to open your eyes enough to see the floor in front of you and integrate sight back into this embodied awareness so that you don't let sight push the body sensations and breath sensations out of your attentional consciousness. And if you can do that, makes awareness of the world around you and the body, that's a fully mindful state.